0: Father in heaven, we do thank you so very, very much for this holy Sabbath day. We thank you, Lord, for protecting us through this past week, for giving us showers of blessing, for taking care of our needs. And Lord, we thank you so much for the protection of holy angels as well and providing the necessities of life for us. Each time we wake up in the morning and open our eyes, we praise thee, Lord, for the mercy and love that you have for us and giving us another day. And we are so thankful for the Sabbath day, the day you created to spend time with us that we could think on heavenly themes. And Father, we pray for the Holy Spirit to be poured out upon us here this morning. We ask humbly that uh, the Holy Spirit will open our minds and hearts to your truth, that we may cultivate a love for this truth, and that the Holy Spirit will help us uh, to let our light shine uh, to others as well, our family, our neighbors, and the world. Father, we ask forgiveness for our sins. We claim the blood Jesus shed there at Calvary. And we pray that what we think and say and do will bring glory to thy name. Give me the words to speak this morning. Father, please be with those who couldn't be here, those who are still traveling to houses of worship and praise. And be with those who are on our prayer list, those who may be ill. We pray that you touch them with healing. We especially ask, Father, you be with the Wilson family, and those around the world who are suffering in like ways. Please bless them and give them hope. We thank you for Jesus. We pray this in his blessed name, for he is worthy. Amen and amen. Well, beloved, um, I've been spending the my mornings here in the last, oh boy, it's been several weeks, uh, I've gotten into these, These audio uh, books. I'm listening to the audio book, The Desire of Ages. And I tell you, I'm just overwhelmed at the information that I continue to learn from that beautiful work about the Savior. Um, I mean, even though I've read the book multiple times, off and on, the last, oh, 30 years. I don't believe I've even scratched the surface of the knowledge it contains about Jesus Christ. I think outside the Bible, it is the greatest book on the life of Christ uh, that there is. Uh, It's it's just wonderful. But as I was listening the other day, I marveled at how uh, loving and giving Jesus is and was, probably more so than he was, from even his earliest years as a child. And something that was said while I was listening really arrested my my diligent attention, caught my attention. I perked right up. In fact, I backed it up and listened to it again. Uh, and 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 it has to do with something I've been contemplating uh, about you know our series here, the sin issue, and and why it is that we can be so hesitant to act. When the scriptures are so plain on the subject, you know, um, especially the call for us to separate from sin and from sinners. Now, as I contemplated this, you know, I realized there are several reasons, really, that we hesitate. And uh, and Jesus spoke of one, though. One I'll bring to your attention. One very strong reason for our hesitation, oftentimes, and that is that we hold to the traditions of men. We hold to the traditions of men. Isn't that true? Notice what Jesus said here, Matthew 15, verses 6 to 9. He said, Thus have ye made the commandment of God of none effect by your, what? By your tradition. Then he says, Ye hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you, saying, This people draw nigh unto me with their mouth, and honoreth me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. But in vain they do worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. And and the more I thought about this, the more I I realized that what really has the most uh, sway upon us, uh, most often it seems, is the influence of others. Isn't that true? The influence of others. And unfortunately, That means we're not being influenced more, per se, by Christ. We hold on to the traditions because of the influence that that others have upon us. You know, family, uh, ministers, co-workers, teachers, scientists, doctors, on and on and on. They all have an influence upon us. And as you study the Bible... I mean think about this this theme this idea and as you study the bible take note take a mental note of how much the influence of others bears out in whatever topic you you may be reading and studying and i think you'll conclude that influence has a great effect upon our personal beliefs now what i mean to say is that it is really rare if we're honest with ourselves and we look at the world we look at our surroundings Uh, um, I think it's really rare to find those who strictly live upon a thus saith the Lord. I want to be one of those people. What about you? I want to live strictly upon a thus saith the Lord. Can we all say amen to that? And that can be for other reasons besides traditions. Don't get me wrong. but But I'd submit it is the effect of different influences upon us instead of the influence of God. And, and let me also say that our influence upon others will also tell whether we're holding to Christ or we are holding to the traditions of men. Now, don't get me wrong. Traditions are not wrong unless they cut across what God says. Unless they cut across that, thus saith the Lord. Can we say amen to that? And, and, and so, what, uh, uh, our influence upon others will, will tell whether we're holding on to Christ or to the traditions. And this is part of the the sanctification process of cleansing us from sin. You see, friends, we also need to be cleansed from ungodly influences. Now, what I want to look at is the effects of influence in relation to the sin issue that we've been uh, studying about for a number of weeks now. As those who profess to be Christians... I would say we want to have a positive influence upon those within our sphere. Am I correct? Wouldn't that be right to say? But we also need to realize the effects that influence has upon us and the source of that influence, whether it's good or bad. And this is needed in order for any change to take place you know, as we walk with the Lord. That's, this, these are things that the Lord uh, is, is helping us to overcome these influences. Now, as we begin, let's get a definition for the word influence, just so we're clear. The dictionary defines the word influence as, first, to produce an effect, uh, to produce an effect on by imperceptible or intangible means, to sway. So, you can be influenced, it's, it's not like a big, flashing sign every time, (laughs) It's it's imperceptible, or it comes around in an intangible way, and it has a swaying effect upon us. A second definition they give is to affect the nature, development, or condition of, to modify. So there is a change that does take place, you see, by influence. It has an effect upon us, one way or the other. And so as I was thinking about this subject, a question popped into my head, uh, and I was talking to my wife about this the other day, uh, and I'm still contemplating this question, but that question was, does anything influence God? Is there anything that influences God? It was a pretty you know, short but uh, interesting discussion, and I think it's something interesting to think about. I mean, have you ever thought about that? Is there anything that influences God? Now, I don't know if I can answer that, at least right now, in, in a succinct way, but I can tell you that there were things that influenced Jesus. And these influences had a great effect upon him, especially when he was a child. Do you believe that, friends? Let me share this with you. It's from the book Child Guidance, page 39. It says, There are no influences so potent as those which surround us in our early years. Do you believe that? Well, I think we've all experienced it, haven't we? Now, well, I believe it. And, and so when you think about that, and you think about Jesus as a child growing up, um, there's something interesting that the Bible says about Jesus as a youth in Luke uh, chapter 2, verse 52, it says, and Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. Now, what influenced Jesus? And how did those influences affect him? Well, the effects were that he increased in wisdom and stature and favor with both God and other people. Isn't that right? Now, don't you want to have those kinds of influences that Jesus had? I sure do. Because I would like to grow in, in you know, increase in wisdom and stature and in favor of God and man. Uh, and I think uh, I think we all would. Uh, now, what were these influences? <coughs> Excuse me. I want to share a couple of, of uh, quotes with you from the book Desire of Ages. First one's from uh, page 89. Page 89 of The Desire of Ages. And we're looking at, What influenced Jesus? Notice this. It says, His hours of happiness were found when alone with nature and with God. Whenever it was his privilege, he turned aside from the scene of his labor to go into the fields, to meditate in the green valleys, to hold communion with God on the mountainside or amid the trees of the forest. The early morning often found him in some secluded place, meditating, searching the Scriptures, or in prayer. From these quiet hours, he would return to his home to take up his duties again and to give an example of patient toil. What was it that uh, influenced Jesus here? Where would he be found? He'd be out in nature, wouldn't he? In the solitude of, of God's first creation, that first book of the Gospel, Here again, go back to page 70 in The Desire of Ages and and, uh, notice this. It says, He who had made all things studied the lessons which his own hand had written in earth and sea and sky. Apart from the unholy ways of the world, he gathered stores of scientific knowledge from nature. He studied the life of plants and animals and the life of man. From his earliest years, he was possessed of one purpose. He lived to bless others. For this, he found resource in nature. New ideas of ways and means flashed into his mind as he studied plant life and animal life. Continually, he was seeking to draw from things seen illustrations by which to present the living oracles of God. The parables by which, during his ministry, he loved to teach his lessons of truth showed how open his spirit was, notice, to the influences of nature. His spirit was what? It was open to the influences of nature and how he had gathered the spiritual teaching from the surroundings of his daily life. One more quick one from the book A Call to Stand Apart, page 26, says, Through nature and revelation, through his providence, and by the influence of his spirit, God speaks to us. God influences us. What avenues? Through nature and revelation, through His providence, and by the influence of His Spirit. Jesus was influenced, friends, by the works of God, just as we are influenced by the works of God, especially if we put ourselves in an environment of heavenly influence like Jesus did. He would go out into, the, into nature. He would walk in amongst the trees, in the, in the quietness of the mountainside. You know, I read a quote one time, I think I've shared it with you before. I read a quote one time, it basically said that by physically being in nature, we are influenced by the works of God. Just by physically, we don't have to do anything else. <laughs> Just by being in nature, we are influenced by those works of God. And I think that Jesus knew all about that and I think Jesus as our example has shown us that to be true. And I think that this also brings home the fact at least it did to me maybe it will to you too but it it, it brought home to me the fact that Jesus was human just like the rest of us. He was born of a woman like all of us were and He was influenced just as we can be influenced. Now, Jesus was also divine. And that is the mystery we cannot comprehend. But I take comfort in knowing that Jesus was like me. What about you? I mean, He was influenced. He learned. He loved. He felt joy and He had hopes. He was also a man of sorrows and griefs, just as we are. As it says in Hebrews 2, 16-18, For verily He took not on Him the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham. Wherefore, in all things it behooved him to be, to be made like unto his brethren. That's us. Humanity. That he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God. To make reconciliation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself hath suffered being tempted. Aren't we tempted? He is able to secure or to help them that are tempted. Praise Jesus. Praise our Lord. And it's because of this human tie with us, friends, a tie that binds us together, that Satan knew he had a chance to influence Christ to sin. Think about that. Here is Christ if He was fully divine. No humanity within Him. There's no way Satan could have conquered Him. But God took risk in allowing his son to come here and become like one of us. And Satan knew that. And Satan knew he had a chance to influence Christ to sin. You know, and how and how does he do that? <laughs> how does he how does he influence us? How does he influence or try to influence Christ? Well, Satan takes the things of God and he perverts them in some way. You see in an effort to influence us to make Sin our choice, uh, and hopefully to to allow it to become a tradition, you could say with us. Look what Satan has done with nature. He has amalgamated animals in an attempt to throw doubts into minds. This is just one way, you know, to th- throw doubts in the minds uh, uh, of human beings about the creation story. Now we have the theory of evolution that wafts throughout the world, and most of the world believes it. He started using nature right there in the Garden of Eden. Look what Satan did to influence Eve. Let's go to Genesis 3 and verse 1. Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, Ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden? Now let me ask you a question. Was that serpent naturally speaking? Was he created to speak in such a way? No, he wasn't. You see, Satan used nature in a way to influence Eve to sin. Satan used the serpent as his medium to pervert the truth of God. And after she chose to disobey God and became a sinner, the effect of this influence that he had over her has snowballed throughout time to our present day. The serpent influenced Eve. Adam, he was influenced by who? His wife. He was influenced by Eve, which resulted in his disobedience. And then the, that separation, you see, this is where you know, separation began in heaven. There was war in heaven, wasn't there? And there was separation there between good and evil. And here in the garden, there was a separation. They had to be removed from the Garden of Eden. Let's follow the family line down. Think about Cain. This is a good example. He was influenced by his father's devotion to God, but he was also open to Satan's influences, and he took his beliefs of his father's to an extreme. And ultimately, that led to him killing his brother Abel, he became the first murderer on the earth. And after Cain killed Abel there was a marked separation between those who followed God and those who didn't. In fact, Cain was physically marked for just such a purpose. And right here you see the beginning. You you actually do see a beginning of a strict separation between those who who love the Lord and those who do not love the Lord. Remember what we've studied so far in how to deal with the sin issue, whether individually uh, or as a family or a church, or even a nation. If there is no repentance, there must be a separation between those who, who wish to follow God and those who only profess to or do not want to. Now we do not, and I'm not teaching this, don't get me wrong, we are not to go to an extreme in the separation like the Jews did. They removed themselves entirely from the nations around them and, and uh, uh, had a caste, you know, a system where they considered some people like samaritans worse than dogs that's not what i'm saying but we are to and god's not saying that either we're to be separate from sin and sinners now we're to be in the world but not of the world right that's what i'm talking about here now why does god call for this separation because the influence that evil has upon those who associate with it Remember, by beholding, we can become changed. Influences, looked at our definition again. Those influences have an effect upon us. And uh, I've said this before. Sin has an effect upon everyone. It doesn't matter if you try to hide it in your home. You could be in a cave on an island somewhere. It will still have an effect upon all people. It's the sin issue. God has to deal with it. It affects all creation. Staying in Babylon, friends, will influence you to sin at some time and in some way. Therefore, the call is to come out. call is to come out and touch not the unclean thing and be separate. That's what the Lord says. Have you you ever heard the expression uh, like attracts like? I think we've all probably heard that expression. Like attracts like. Think of that, and and listen to these words of Christ in John 15, and verse 19. Jesus said, If ye were of the world, the world would love his own. But because ye are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Friends, people are in Babylon for one of two reasons. When you boil it all down, Either, number one, they love to be there. I mean, ignorantly or not. They love to be there. Or, number two, they don't realize they're there. Okay? Those who love the world love to be in Babylon. Now, some who love Jesus are in Babylon, but they don't know that they are. And that's why they need to be called out. They need to hear the Master's voice calling them to come out of Babylon. There needs to be a separation. And as I said, we've seen this principle played out throughout history. Let's go back to, to Cain. Genesis 4 and verse 16. Genesis 4 and verse 16. And Cain went out from the presence of the Lord and dwelt in the land of Nod on the east of Eden. So here we see this separation. Cain murdered his brother Abel, and then God pleaded with Cain. Cain was unrepentive. And so God marked him, and there was a separation. And Cain went out from the presence of the Lord, it says here. He dwelt in the land of Nod on the east of Eden. So he headed east. And so upon receiving the curse of God, he'd withdrawn from his father's household. We'll get back to that in a minute in, in another example. But he had gone out from the presence of the Lord to do what? Well, what could he do? He rejected God, so he went out to seek material possessions, you know, and and enjoyment in the earth under the curse of sin. And thus, Cain stands at the head of that great class of people who worship the God of this world. You know, it's interesting to note when you you study this history here, that all the children of Adam that remained loyal to God honored the Seventh-day Sabbath. But Cain and his descendants did not respect the day upon which God had rested and sanctified and made holy. They chose their own time for labor, their own time for rest, regardless of what God's commands were. Now, what day do you think they chose as their day of worship? (laughs) Well, they chose the first day of the week in the worship of the sun, called Sun Day. Right? And so you have this separation now, Adam and Eve, they'd lost a, a son, Abel. He was killed. They lost another son, Cain, who had rejected them and God and left. And so they had another son. Genesis 4 and verse 25. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bare a son and called his name Seth. For God said, for God said she had, uh, hath appointed me another seed instead of Abel, for, uh, whom Cain slew. The name Seth actually uh, means appointed or or compensation. That's what the name means. Now Abel had led the life of a pastor. He he dwelled in tents or booths. Uh, uh, booths. He um, he was a a shepherd, you know. And the descendants of Seth they followed that same course. Now. For some time, the two classes, those of Cain and Seth, they remained separate. And uh, uh, that's a good thing, you know. The race of Cain, they spread uh, from the place of their first settlement there, east of Eden, um, and dispersed over the plains and valleys where the children of Seth had dwelt. And in order to escape from that contaminating influence of Cain and his descendants... Seth's descendants withdrew to the mountains. And it just reminded me, I mean, what did we read about Jesus? Where did Jesus find solitude? He would go into nature. He often would be found in the mountains by himself in contemplation, in prayer, in study. And this is why we're counseled, uh, friends, to live in country settings. And uh, so we can escape from the noise of Babylon and l- hear the, the voice of God. And so so long as this separation continued between Cain's descendants and Seth's descendants, uh, Seth's descendants maintained the worship of God in its purity. But in time, they ventured, little by little, to mingle with the inhabitants of the valleys, which had terrible results and this is where I want you to pay close attention at how subtle and powerful the influence of evil is and the effects it has upon the followers of God. Let's look at Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. And it came to pass, when men began to multiply on the face of the earth, and daughters were born unto them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were fair, and they took them wives of all which they chose. Now friends, this is really a pretty simple verse and there's no reason for any misunderstanding about this verse if you pay attention to the context and the wording. You know, contrary to what some religions teach, this verse does not say that angels married the daughters of men and that's why there were giants on the earth. It's incredible what some will strive to believe. There are some religions that teach that. Um, It's saying that, basically it's saying that the beauty of the daughters of Cain's descendants attracted the children of Seth, and even though it displeased the Lord, they married them. That's what it's saying. Now, why would this displease the Lord? Think about it because of the effects of influence they would have upon their God-fearing husbands. God wants a distinct line drawn between His true followers and those who are not His followers. And this intermarrying, oh, it's remarkable, you get into the Old Testament and read, I mean, actually the whole Bible from beginning to end. This intermarrying, even to our day, friends, this intermarrying with heathens has plagued God's people all through history. And you'll find that it was always the heathen wives that influenced the godly husbands to forget the Lord. Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm not being sexist. Uh, I'm stating biblical history here. They were following the path that their first mother, Eve, had trod and influenced the husband. And friends, we need to, to understand that Satan uses women in such ways to lead God's people especially God's leaders, away. And he, it's effective, and you can see it throughout biblical history that uh, Satan uses these heathen women to do such things. Peor is a fantastic example of that before they crossed into the Promised Land. Friends, we're about to go into the Promised Land now, and uh, you've seen, I, th- I think it multiplied within the last 5-10 to ten years, the fall of several of God's leaders who have been taken in by the captivation of these heathen-type women. So, we need to be aware of the influences that are around us. But think about that. If your church is in a fallen condition, what you decide to do as a member, and we talked about how we are to react, remember the last couple of studies? How are we to react to a, a fallen church? Our influence if your church has fallen, our influence um, has an effect uh, on people around. We influence others, whether we know it or not. So what we decide to do in respect to a fallen uh, church, if our church is fallen, what we decide to do as a member will influence the course that others will take. Believe me. I run into to so many who tell me that they... That they're staying within a fallen church in order to reach those who are inside the church so they can warn and convert them. Sounds noble and self-sacrificing, doesn't it? I mean, isn't that wonderful? Doesn't that sound wonderful? But let's think about that for a moment. Think about it. Is that something that God has ever asked anyone to do, ever? Give me some examples. You won't find any. Does God ask anyone? Think about this. Does God ask anyone to remain in Babylon? Or is He calling them out? What's the Bible say about Babylon? The Bible says Babylon is fallen, is fallen. Come out of her, my people. It doesn't say Babylon is fallen, is fallen. Stay in her so you can reach others, so Babylon can be converted. I haven't found that anywhere in the Bible. Has anybody else? Now, we've looked at the principles of calling sin by its name to try and bring repentance. But that's different than what I'm talking about here. There are people who refuse to come out of a fallen church to come out of apostasy because they say that they're trying to reach those who are still in apostasy. But my friends, we should be more interested in what God says we are to do and obey Him, shouldn't we? Men tell you to stay in. God tells you to come out. What are you going to do? Revelation 18 in verse 4, And I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, that ye be not partakers of her sins. How can you be partakers of her sins? You, I'm going to stay in Babylon. I'm going to try to reach in because I'm righteous. God's saying, no, you stay in there. You're going to be be partaking of her sins. And He says to come out so that you don't partake of her sins that you uh, and that you receive not of her plagues. And so we have to ask ourselves, friends, very very tough questions. We have to be honest with ourselves. Who has the most influence with us, man or God? Does God have greater influence with us? Or do the traditions of men, do men, the family, you know, who has the most influence with us? From the Desire of Ages, page 232. Many times those who are seeking for light are by the same teaching obliged to leave the church of their fathers that they may render obedience. You see this throughout history, friends. Throughout biblical history. In order to follow God. When a church gets into a fallen condition, they're more of the world than they are of God. A choice will have to be made. What is it that God would have me to do? God says to come out. You have to leave. In order to be obedient, you have to leave. And and friends, I want to tell you that we make a tremendous mistake if we think that we can lower ourselves to the world's standard and still have a godly influence upon them. Alright? I see this happen especially in evangelistic meetings. Uh, it's, It's sad. I mean, it's never happened. It never will because you have to leave God in some way in order to do it you have to lower god's standard it, you know when you lower god's standard you're leaving god in some way and we don't want to leave god we want to get closer to god look at this uh look at this quote from manuscript number 7 yeah, it was written in 19 the year 1900 never bring the truth down to a low level in order to obtain converts but seek to bring the sinful and corrupted up to the high standard of the law of God. We want to live as Jesus has shown us. And Jesus lived at a high standard, but He reached those who were who were low. He didn't drop down to their level. He picked them up. He still does that today, praise God. Here's another one. Fundamentals of Christian Education, page 288. We are not to elevate our standard just a little above the world standard, but we are to make the line of demarcation decidedly apparent. Remember I said God has drawn a a dividing line. He wants it to be decidedly apparent that there are two sides. So, the sons of Seth were attracted to the daughters of Cain, and thus there was a mingling between them. And many of the worshipers of God were beguiled into sin by the allurements that were now constantly before them, and they lost their peculiar, holy character. You saw a combination of truth and error. That's what, you know, Babylon does. That's why it's described as wine. It's also intoxicating to our senses, see? We're not to drink of the wine of Babylon, which is those false doctrines and teachings. But what happened? They mingled, they joined, they lost their peculiar holy character. Mingling with the depraved, they became like them in spirit, they became like them in their actions. The restrictions of the seventh commandment were disregarded, and they took them wives of all which they chose. And, as Jude 11 says, the children of Seth went in the way of Cain. They fixed their minds upon worldly prosperity and enjoyment, and they neglected the commandments of the Lord. And what happened as a result of that? Sin spread on the earth like a leprosy. And you can map this out, friends, all in the Bible. It's all in the Bible record. You can see it. Now, The Bible doesn't say a lot about Enoch, who was a descendant of Seth, but we know that he was not influenced by the evil in the world. Just from what we read here in Genesis 5, verses 23 and 24, it says, And all the days of Enoch were three hundred sixty and five years, and Enoch walked with who? Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. Enoch walked with God so closely... He became a friend to God and he had perfected his character through the merits of Christ. Remember, this is before the cross, friends. By faith. And God took him to heaven without seeing death. See what happens when we walk with God? (laughs) When we walk in the influence of God? That's what I want. Notice this from Patriarchs and Prophets, page 85. Distressed by the increasing wickedness of the ungodly and fearing that their infidelity might lessen his reverence for God, Enoch avoided constant association with them. It didn't say he avoided all association, did it? No, we want to reach souls for the kingdom. But it says that he avoided constant association with them and spent much time in what? Solitude, giving himself to meditation and prayer. Now, where do you think he probably found solitude? It wouldn't be in the cities, you know, of the descendants of Cain. It would be in those mountains. It would be in nature, just as Jesus did. He did the same thing here that Enoch did. So, beloved, we need to check ourselves in our environments, don't we? Are we being influenced by ungodly associations without realizing it? We need to contemplate this. And this includes family, doesn't it? Especially family, I believe, because we are around them more than anyone else (laughs) for the most part. I mean, think about that. Adam and Eve were husband and wife. They were family. Cain and Seth were brothers. They were family. Ungodly family members may be the most powerful influence that will lessen our reverence for God and destroy our Christian character development. You know, but you can't always just run away from family. God tells us we need to be like Enoch. We need to maybe avoid constant association, get out, spend time with God to be able be a positive influence, if we possibly can, upon our family members. But sometimes a separation is called for. In Matthew 10, verses 35 and 36, Jesus said, For I am come to set a man at variance against his father, and the daughter against her mother, and the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's foes shall be they of his own household. And we see again that a separation here takes place, even within families. We're coming down to crunch time here before Jesus comes. And there will be separations in families. And just as Jesus said, Our foes will be those of our own household, especially the household of faith. Former brethren will be our greatest enemies when it comes down to the Sunday Law issue. God draws a line, friends, of demarcation between His Spirit and people and the Spirit of Antichrist and the ungodly. And God didn't have them separate, you know, just for arbitrary reasons. I have my team members and I want them just to meet over here just because I say so. That's not why. It has to do with these influences. Take, for example, Abraham. God chose Abraham of the line of Shem and made him the keeper of his law for future generations. Now, Abraham had grown up in the midst of superstition and heathenism. He was in it all, and idolatry. Even his father's household, by whom the knowledge of God had been preserved, was yielding to the seductive influences that were surrounding them. And as the Bible says, they served other gods. So even though they knew about God and had a knowledge of the true God, they still served other gods. Genesis 12 and verse 1, notice this, says, Now the Lord had said unto Abram, Get thee out of thy country. He's saying, get up and leave. And from thy kindred and from thy father's house unto a land that I will show thee. Friends, this is rather remarkable, isn't it? God is speaking to Abraham, and he says, I want you to pick up and head out. I'm not even telling you where. Head out in that direction. (laughs) Separate from your family who you've known your entire life. From your country. You may be very patriotic, but I want you to get up and go. Right? And I'll show you where later. Well, the the Lord's call, you see, required Abraham to make a complete break with the past. He not only had to leave Mesopotamia, his homeland, But he also had to give up family ties and even his father's house never to return to those of his own blood and race again. Now, someone may ask, well, why did Abraham have to separate like that? Well, friends, it has to do with the effects of influence upon his spiritual welfare and his calling. Let me read this to you from Patriarchs and Prophets page 126. Patriarchs and Prophets, page 126. In order that God might qualify him for his great work as the keeper of the sacred oracles, Abraham must be separated from the associations of his early life. The influence of kindred and friends would interfere with the training which the Lord purposed to give his servants. What would happen? If he stayed there, the influence of his kindred and friends would interfere with his training from the Lord. Now that Abraham was, in a special sense, connected with heaven, he must dwell among strangers. His character must be peculiar, differing, <coughs> excuse me, differing from all the world. He could not even explain his course of action so as to be understood by his friends. Spiritual things are spiritually discerned. I I would imagine most of his family thought he was crazy. He is insane. He has gone out of his mind. (laughs) But what? Spiritual things are spiritually discerned. And his motives and actions were not comprehended by his idolatrous kindred. But what does the Bible say about Abraham? I mean, look at Hebrews 11 and verse 8. By faith Abraham, when he was called to go out into a place which he should after receive for an inheritance, obeyed. He obeyed God, and he went out not knowing whether he went. So even though his family tried influencing him to to stay, maybe maybe you can move, but stay in Mesopotamia, you know, so that we're closer. Or they tried. Believe me, they tried, and then they thought he's just absolutely nuts. He's lost his mind. But Abraham's unquestioning obedience is one of the most striking evidences of faith to be found in the entire Bible, friends. To him, faith was the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Patriarchs and Prophets, page 126 again. Relying upon the divine promise without the least outward assurance of its fulfillment. Think about that for a minute. (laughs) Relying upon the divine promise without the least outward assurance of its fulfillment. That's faith, isn't it? I trust God. God told me to do this. I'm going to do it. It says, He abandoned home and kindred and native land and went forth. He knew not whither to follow where God should lead. Friends, it was no small test that was brought upon Abraham. No small sacrifice that was required of him. There were strong ties Can't you imagine? There were strong ties to bind him to his country and his family and his home. But he didn't hesitate to obey the call of God. And he separated from those influences. Patriarchs and Prophets. Go back to page 126. Many are still tested, as was Abraham. They do not hear the voice of God speaking directly from the heavens, but he calls them by the teachings of his word and the events of his providence. They may be required to abandon a career that promises wealth and honor, to leave congenial and profitable associations and separate from kindred, to enter upon what appears to be only a path of self-denial, hardship, and sacrifice. God has a work for them to do. But a life of ease and the influence of friends and kindred would hinder the development of the very traits essential for its accomplishment. He calls them away from human influences and aid and leads them to feel the need of his help and depend upon him alone that he may reveal himself to them. Who is ready at the call of providence to renounce cherished plans and familiar associations, especially in the time we're living in now? Who will accept new duties and enter untried fields, doing God's work with firm and willing heart, for Christ's sake counting his losses gain? He who will do this has the faith of Abraham and will share with him that far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory with which the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared. Of Abraham it's written that he was called the friend of God. He's called the father of all them that believe. We can call him father. (laughs) In Genesis 26 and verse 5, notice this relationship that Abraham had with God because he followed the influences of God and obeyed God. In Genesis 26, 5, the Lord says, Abraham obeyed my voice, kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. In Genesis 18, verse 19. I know him. This is God speaking about Abraham. I know him. Does God know you? Something to think about, isn't it? God said about Abraham, I know him, that he will command his children and his household after him, and they shall keep the way of the Lord to do justice and judgment that the Lord may bring upon Abraham that which he hath spoken of him. It was a high honor to which Abraham was called, friends. That of being the father of the people who for for centuries were the guardians and preservers of the truth of God for the world of that people through whom all the nations of the earth should be blessed in the coming of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. There would be no betraying of the truth by Abraham. He would keep the law. He would deal justly and righteously And the record bears that out. And he would not only fear the Lord himself, but would cultivate religion in his home. He would instruct his family in righteousness. The law of God would be the rule in his household. And friends, this is a great lesson for us, in that God told Abraham to remove himself from those powerful influences that would stunt his spiritual growth. And he obeyed God. And we see the fruit of that obedience in his life. And beloved, that's where we find ourselves today. We find ourselves at the crossroads of these prevailing influences. Some of them are detected, but most aren't. And the only way to detect them is to have spiritual eye salve and to deal with them as God would have us deal with them. And so far... We've seen that God would have us remove ourselves from these powerful influences. You know, what is the best for our families and our souls? Should we heed the counsels and callings of God or should we stay the course and reap the results of these ungodly associations and 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 these fallen environments rationalizing their true impact away? We human beings we're very good at rationalizing things. Is God's law the rule of Our life, or are we uh, deceived into just thinking that it is? All the while, the devil's using the the power of ungodly influences to steal away our salvation, but give us this feeling of, you know, uh, satisfaction and and that uh, we're in a saved condition. So there's some things we really need to consider. We have another Bible example of the effects of influence in the life of Lot. Abraham and his nephew Lot eventually separated because they'd grown too big. God had blessed both of them, and so they grew so big they couldn't stay together. Lot chose the valley of Sedim and eventually moved within the very walls of Sodom. And my question is, why? Why would he do this? Because of the power of Sodom's influence and the effects it had upon his family. They wanted to be closer to the excitement and the ease of the city. Hmm, there's a lesson for us. (laughs) Sodom's iniquity finally reached overflowing. And God sent angels to destroy the city and all the inhabitants. But the mercy of God was shown towards Lot, as the angels, and eventually Christ himself, warned Lot to flee. The command was given in Genesis 19, verse 17. Escape for thy life. Many people don't realize this, but this was Christ speaking to Lot. Escape for thy life. Look not behind thee, neither stay thou in all the plain. Escape to the mountain, lest thou be consumed. And Lot obeyed this command from Christ immediately, right? (laughs) No, he didn't. Lot and his wife believed, but they found it difficult to leave all their possessions behind. And in momentary confusion and bewilderment, Lot lingered. He was undecided. He didn't know what he should carry with him as he fled. What do I grab and take with me? (laughs) The angels, I mean, they manifested no concern over any of Lot's possessions. They physically pulled the four of them away by force, because the Lord was merciful unto them. That's what the Bible says. And then Jesus, with whom Abraham had interceded the day before, remember Abraham was saying, Lord, if I could just find a hundred righteous souls. Remember that? If I can just find ten. Well, actually, there were how many? Ultimately, there were only three weren't there. But Jesus, He joins the angels outside the the city walls and He adds urgency to their warning. And I think the the need for Christ Himself to join the angels in in their appeal to Lot suggests that He and His wife were still hesitant about leaving everything behind. The angels had warned Him, the angels had grabbed Him, drug Him outside the wall, and they're still being hesitant. So the Lord joins in and, and says, Get out, escape for thy life! But what's Lot saying? Lot saying, Lord, could the destruction be postponed a little bit until we have the opportunity to get all of our possessions? That's kind of, right? I mean, give us a little more time. We might even persuade others to, to come with us if you give us a little more time. I mean, Lord, can we not stay in our fallen church so we can reach others? Why such haste to separate ourselves, Lord? Can you imagine? But Christ appears and he commands, Escape for thy life. Patriarchs and Prophets, page 160. But Lot, confused and terrified, pleaded that he could not do as he was required, lest some evil should overtake him and he should die. Isn't that remarkable? <laughs> Jesus Himself says, Escape for thy life, and Lot here's worried that he runs to the mountains and some something's going to happen to him. The Lord himself tells him to do something, and he's terrified of that. That some evil's going to overtake him. It's remarkable to me. It says, living in that wicked city in the midst of unbelief, his faith had grown dim. See what the evil influences did to, to Lot? His faith had grown dim. The Prince of Heaven was by His side. Who's the Prince of Heaven? That's Jesus Christ. The Prince of Heaven was by His side, yet He pleaded for His own life as though God, who had manifested such care and love for Him, would not still preserve Him. He should have trusted Himself wholly to the divine messenger, giving His will and His life into the Lord's hands without a doubt or a question. See how the effects of the wrong kind of influences have upon our spirituality. Lot was pleading with Christ to give him more time in that fallen, wicked environment in order to maybe, just maybe, convert others. Or let me gather my stuff. But Jesus said, escape for thy life, Lot. And I think we should beware of treating lightly God's gracious provisions for our salvation, friends. Notice this Review and Herald, January 2nd, 1900. You are exhorted to touch not the unclean thing, for in touching this you will yourself become unclean. We're talking about influences here. It is impossible for you to unite with those who are corrupt and still remain pure. What fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness, and what communion hath light with darkness, and what concord hath Christ with Belial? God and Christ and the heavenly host would have man know that if he unites with the corrupt he will become corrupt. Now, wide a contrast between the life of Abraham and that of Lot? Lot had chosen Sodom for its ease, pleasure, and profit. He permitted his children to mingle with a, a corrupt and idolatrous people, and yet he had retained in his heart the fear of God, for he is, you read the Bible, he is declared in the Scriptures to have been a just man. So you could say that he was saved at last as a brand plucked out of the fire, couldn't you? You look at the condition he was in. Abraham, Look at the, the contrast. Abraham, one of the wealthiest, most blessed of God. He didn't count that as anything that he had attained. And here, Lot, he was stripped of his possessions. He was bereaved of his wife and children. He dwelled in caves like a wild beast. And he gave to the world not a race of righteous men, as Abraham did, but two idolatrous nations at enmity with God and warring upon God's people until their cup of iniquity was full and they were ultimately destroyed. How terrible were the results that followed Lot's blindness to the power of influence in his life. I'm running out of time here. I want one more example here about the effects of of influence. Let's go to Hebrews 11, verses 24 to 26. By faith, Moses, when he was come to years, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he had respect and the recompense of the reward. Moses was fitted to take preeminence among the great men of the earth. To shine in the courts of of its most glorious kingdom of that time being Egypt, his intellectual greatness distinguishes him above the great men of all the ages i mean you you look at Moses i mean he was a historian, he was a poet, philosopher, he was the general of armies, he was a legislator i mean he stands without peer in in many respects, yet with the world before him, he had the moral strength to refuse the flattering prospects of wealth and greatness and fame. As it said there, he chose rather to suffer affliction with the people of God. But one day, seeing an Egyptian smiting an Israelite, he sprang forward and he killed the Egyptian. He buried the dead man in the sand, and he thought no mon- nobody would ever know. They'll never know. But the following day, Moses saw two Hebrews fighting, he reproved the offender, and at once they retaliated, who made thee a prince and judge over us? Are you intending to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Uh Uh-oh. Then the matter was made to the Egyptians It reached the ears of Pharaoh. Moses was sentenced to die, but he escaped and he fled towards Arabia. Now think about all that Moses had seen, what had influenced him there in that life. Moses had been learning a lot in Egypt that he needed to unlearn. The influences that had surrounded him, the, the love of his foster mother, his own high position as the king's grandson, the refinement, the subtlety, and the mysticism of false religion, the idolatrous worship, the incredible architecture sculpture of the city, all had left deep impressions upon his mind and molded him, really, to some extent, molded his habits and his character. He needed time, he needed to change his surroundings, commune with God to remove all those impressions. Patriarchs and Prophets, page 248. Shut in by the bulwarks of the mountains, Moses... Where was he? In the city or in the country, in nature? He's in the mountains. Shut in by the bulwarks of the mountains, Moses was alone with God. The magnificent temples of Egypt no longer impressed his mind with their superstition and falsehood. In the solemn grandeur of the everlasting hills he beheld the majesty of the Most High and in contrast realized how powerless and insignificant were the gods of Egypt. Everywhere the Creator's name was written out there in nature and in the mountains. Moses seemed to stand in his presence and to be overshadowed by his power. Here his pride and self-sufficiency were swept away In the stern simplicity of his wilderness life, the results of the ease and luxury of Egypt disappeared. Moses became patient, reverent, and humble, very meek above all the men which were upon the face of the earth, yet strong in faith in the mighty God of Jacob. So, friends, in just a few examples that I've shared with you today. And there are so many more. We've seen the power that influence wields and its subtlety and its effects. And I'm becoming more convinced than ever that there are influences in our lives that only God can show us. And we cannot see them unless we're removed uh, uh, from them first. And this was the case that we saw with Abraham. This is the case we saw with Moses. From the Paulson Collection... Page 357, whatever course of action the human agent may pursue, others are influenced. God alone knows the extent of this individual responsibility. Apparent influence may be deceiving. Real influence requires all that there is of a man. Whatever the position of surroundings of old or young, they carry with them an influence. Their responsibility is great. No one can be lax, self-indulgent, self-serving, and be counted worthy of eternal life. Look at the contrasts. We're starting to see the descendants of Cain. They're the ones that congregate in the big cities and and such where God's word, His voice is shut out. Seth's descendants, they find themselves in nature, in the mountains, in secluded places where they can hear the voice of God and be influenced by God and not of Babylon. So is spiritual prosperity your first consideration? Or like Lot, our family associations and material possessions holding you? Do we plead with Jesus to let us stay within a fallen system of worship, a city, or or a nation, a country? Or do we obey the word of the Lord and separate from the ungodly? Signs of the Times, November 8, 1899. There is a point beyond which it is impossible to maintain union and harmony without the sacrifice of principle. Separation then becomes an absolute duty. You've heard me share that with you before. And I'll leave you with this. Second Corinthians six, verse 17, 18. Wherefore come out from among them and be ye separate, saith the Lord. Not only separate, but touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you, and will be a father unto you, and you shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. Beloved, I strongly encourage you to evaluate your environment prayerfully, with the guidance of God's Spirit, and to evaluate the environment of your family, asking God to guide you into the land that He has prepared for you as He did faithful Abraham. And I'll tell you this, He who is faithful, who promised. Let's pray. Father in Heaven, we do again thank You so much for Your Holy Word. We thank You, Lord, for sharing these truths with us. We ask for the Holy Spirit to come into our hearts and minds and guide us, to open us up, give us discernment as to the influences that are affecting us, To follow your principles and by faith do as you ask, knowing that you have our interest uh, always at heart, our best interest. We pray, Lord, that you will guide and direct us in the way that we should go. And may we bring glory to thy name in our obedience as we look to thee in faith. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.